Let's dig in. These are five questions that you came up with, all right? I did not come up with any of these five questions. I'm going to be honest with you, and we're going to uh, answer them this morning. The first one is this. After Cain killed Abel, that was in Genesis chapter 4. If you have your Bible, you can turn there and you can actually read some of that text there. The Bible says that he lived with other people. Who were these people if Adam and Eve were the only people that were living on earth at the time? That's a really great question. That kind of goes right along with that question, did Adam and Eve have belly buttons? Have you ever wondered that one? Did they? Maybe you've wondered that. If you have, you need to go just a little bit deeper in your study of the word, okay? Um, But it is a good question. Adam and Eve were the first people. They had two sons, Cain and Abel. Where did all these other people uh, come from? Who was Cain's wife, right? Those are are good questions. The Bible doesn't say specifically how old uh, Cain and Abel were, uh, how old Cain was when he killed Abel there in Genesis chapter 4, we read in verse 8. But since they were both farmers, it's easy for us to speculate uh, that they were probably uh, young adults, full-grown adults, and possibly even... Uh, with families of their own as we get into that particular text in Genesis uh, chapter 4. Now, Adam and Eve, Bible scholars firmly believe this. In fact, I've never read any scholar that doesn't agree with this, that Adam and Eve obviously had more children uh, that we don't read about uh, in the Bible, uh, although we do read that they had more children. If you go to uh, chapter 5 and verse 4, the fact that Adam, uh, the fact that Cain was scared for his life after he killed Abel indicated that there were obviously more people than just his mom and dad, right? Would indicate that there was a reason why he was scared, and he wasn't just scared uh, for God. It indicates that there were likely many other children, and perhaps even grandchildren at that particular point of Adam and Eve, that were already living at that time. Now, uh, Cain's wife was obviously a daughter or a granddaughter of Adam and Eve. Now, immediately when I say that, for some of you, you go, okay, i got a problem with that, all right? Because we have a tendency to look at the Bible sometimes through our cultural lenses, don't we? And we go, okay, if that happened now, we'd see that as a big problem, right? I mean, we'd pretty much all agree uh, with that. But since Adam and Eve were the first and only human beings uh, at, when they came on the planet, their children would have no other choice but to intermarry. In fact, God did not forbid uh, intermarriage until much later then there were enough people to make intermarriage uh, unnecessary. In fact, if you were uh, to go to the book of Leviticus, as I know many of you did this week in your quiet times and you were to study there, uh, Leviticus chapter 18, verses 6 to 18, uh, you would see that uh, there was a point in time at which God said that's no longer necessary. In fact, he, in fact, he forbid uh, intermarriage. Uh, the reason that incest today often results in genetic uh, abnormalities is that when two people of similar uh, genetics, for example, a brother and a sister, have children together, there's obviously a, a very uh, high risk of their uh, recessive characteristics becoming dominant. And when people from different families have children, it's highly unlikely that both parents will carry those same recessive traits. And so the human genetic code over time has obviously become uh, increasingly polluted over the centuries, and the genetic defects have, have multiplied, and so obviously uh, that now is, is a major problem. But Adam and Eve did not have any genetic defects, and that enabled them and the first few generations of their descendants uh, to, uh, to have, far, have a far greater quality of health. We talked about that a few weeks ago, remember, about how did they live so long? And um, obviously, uh, that intermarriage was necessary in the beginning of the human race. And so Adam and Eve's children, uh, they had a few children. uh, And obviously, as those children uh, multiplied, they married. And obviously, that's the way the human race uh, got started. 
And so evidently, when Cain went and left his family, his mom and his dad, when he killed uh, Abel, obviously he went out and the people that he went to obviously were somewhat related to him. They could have been brothers, sisters, nieces, nephews, uh, but those are the people that he would have gone out and he would have been with. All right? So if you've ever wondered that, there's the answer uh, to that uh, question. It's funny because none of these five questions had names attached to them. There were a few that the handwriting I went, I think I know who that is, all right? But I'm still going to leave your names uh, out. All right, question number two. This is a good one, too. This came actually from, I believe, one of our high school students. Uh, They asked this question, is it a sin to kill someone in war? Is God against war since you would most likely be killing an unbeliever and they would not have an opportunity to know him as their savior? Very insightful question, right? Now, many people make the mistake of reading uh, what the Bible says in Exodus 20, uh, 13, that we shouldn't kill, they have a tendency to take that and they have a tendency to take it to the, the extreme and to, mis- and to uh, make the mistake of seeking to apply that command actually to war. However, uh, the Hebrew word literally means the intentional premeditated killing of another person with malice and murder. In fact, if you go back to the Old Testament, you don't really have to read very far before you recognize that God often ordained the Israelites to go to war with other nations, right? I mean, you see that all the way through the Old Testament, 1 Samuel 15, Joshua 4. Uh, God ordered the death penalty for numerous crimes in Scripture. You remember when Achan uh, stole and he was ordered to be, to be killed, not just him, but his entire family, they were told, uh, the children of Israel were told to stone them. So God is not against killing in all circumstances, but only murder. And I, I really believe this, and I think many of you probably do too, that murder or, or a war is never a good thing. Murder is certainly not a good thing. That would never be a good thing. But war is never a, a, a good thing. But sometimes it is a necessary thing in the world uh, that we live in with sinful uh, people. When you look at the book of Romans and and read about uh, what our culture currently looks like, what it will look like in the last days in Romans chapter 3, we understand that war is inevitable. And sometimes the only way to keep sinful people from doing great harm to the innocent is by going to war. Now this question doesn't specifically deal with the death penalty, but I think the death penalty would apply there as well. Um, I know that many of you have, have probably had a lot of consternation and and uh, deep grief over this situation in Aurora, uh, Colorado. I really believe that some of the problems that we face today is because we don't judge as harshly as we should as a society the innocent taking of human life. I was telling Diana, uh, it it would be interesting to know uh, the deterrent if when something like that happened, if we just simply said, uh, okay, media, you you cannot cover who this person is, we found them, we've dealt with them, we understand there's, there's proof, there's evidence that they committed this crime. We don't want them to be sensationalized, we don't want their faces to be plastered all over the place. I heard within 24 hours this gentleman had a Wikipedia page. Isn't that sad? He all of a sudden became a, a, a person well-known, not just in our country, but around the world. If we put a media blackout on him and then we just swiftly made sure that he was indeed guilty... Uh, We gave him an opportunity to repent, to confess, to do what he needed to do, but then he paid for his crime uh, immediately. I I, I can't help but think that that would be a greater deterrent. But you think if you're living a life where you think your life is meaningless and worthless, and by the way, that's never true of a human life, 
But if you get to that point where you think that that's true and you think, wow, the greatest thing to do would be able to go into a crowded movie theater and start shooting a gun and killing 12 innocent people and I'll get a Wikipedia page and I'll at least go out with a blaze and I'll have the opportunity with taxpayer-funded dollars to spend the rest of my life in somewhat of a luxurious uh, accommodations depending on where you came from, you might do what people do. I think it's important for us to understand that God is not against the judgment of sin. We see that all the way through Scripture. In fact, in the Old Testament, God ordered the Israelites to take vengeance on the Midianites for the Israelites. Deuteronomy 20, verses 16 and 17 declares, However, in the cities of the nations the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, do not leave alive anything that breathes. Completely destroy them as the Lord your God has commanded you. In fact, if you go to the book of Revelation... Uh, we would read that Jesus' second coming will be exceedingly violent. I won't take the time to go there, but if you were to go to Revelation uh, 19, you'll see, uh, verse 13, how bloody it's going to be, how gory it's going to be. The birds will eat the flesh of all those who oppose him. It's pretty obvious that God is not against all uh, war. And so it's it's an error to say that God never supports war. Uh, Jesus is not a pacifist. In a world uh, that's filled with evil people, sometimes war is necessary to prevent even greater evil. I wonder, and again, I don't want to go off on a lot of tangents this morning, uh, but I wonder if uh, our generation uh, would have been here during World War I, World War II, if we'd actually enjoy the society that we enjoy today. Because many of us believe that we live in a society, we live in a place where if we, if we just say enough nice things, if we just sit across the table and try to work things out, that things will be fine. I wonder how many Jews Hitler would have ultimately, ultimately extinguished if our generation were alive at that point and been making those decisions. It's a pretty incredible thing to think about. I'm very grateful for those men and women that came before us that fought bravely and valiantly for the freedoms that you and I enjoy today and that our military all over the globe uh, is uh, most uh, predominantly still trying to protect. And I'm thankful for that. And I'm thankful to live in a country that values a human life. And so war is a terrible thing, but uh, some wars are more just than others, but war is the result of sin. We know that again from Romans uh, chapter 3. And at the same time, Ecclesiastes Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 8 declares what? It declares that there is a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. And we know ultimately what the end is, right? In the end, at the end of the book of Revelation, we see there will be no more war. There will be no more rumor of war. There will not be any killing or stealing or anything like that. That will all be abolished. It will all be done away with. And we will live, those of us that know Jesus as our personal Savior, we will live uh, in the new Jerusalem on the new earth. We will live in a way in which God intended for it to be from the beginning before sin came upon uh, this planet. But it's a great question, and I think it's important to recognize also that we have uh, a land where where we have officials, where we have laws. And certainly if you're part of the military and uh, you are brought into war, you have a responsibility uh, to, uh, to be obedient to those uh, that are over you, uh, but never to take, uh, obviously, innocent life. Interesting ramifications for that question, and that would probably be one of those that now will probably be a sermon hang-up for some of you now, and so you'll jot a question down, and one hang-up will lead to another hang-up, which will lead to another hang-up, and we'll just keep going for a year with hang-ups, all right? 
All right, question number three. Here's a good question. If we are justified and made clean with the blood of Jesus as seen as righteous, why are our sins brought before us at the judgment seat? If that is the sin of missed opportunity, that is still sin. So is all sin revealed at the judgment seat? Good question, right? You've heard about the great white throne judgment. You don't want to end up there. The great white throne judgment obviously is the judgment where if you find yourself there, it's not a good thing. That means your, your name has not been written in the Lamb's book of life. You did not know Jesus as your personal Savior. And there are eternal ramifications for that. We'll talk about that in a few moments. And that's called spending eternity apart from God in hell. In answering this question, though, many people would point out that the Bible says that as far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed our transgressions from us. I love quoting that verse, and I believe that that's true. We read other verses that he's cast our sins in the depths of the deepest sea, and he remembers them no more. And so we could conclude that once we confess a sin, it's forgiven, and we're not held accountable for it, right? In fact, I like that. I've shared with you several times. That's the way my boys grew up. They did what? They said, sorry. And then there were no ramifications because I said, sorry. So there were no ramifications for that. That didn't take very long. They didn't have to get very old before they learned. Sorry doesn't mean there's no consequences, all right? Sorry means I don't kill you. Not that I would kill my kids because I just said murder is wrong. Not that I would kill you, but, but there will be consequences for your sin, right? But sometimes we think that when Jesus says, hey, I remove them as far as the east is from the west, and I don't remember them any longer, I bury them in the depths of the deepest sea, and I go, what sin? (laughs) You didn't commit a sin. That's a wrong understanding. When the Bible speaks about forgetting our sin, it does not mean that the omniscient God of the universe suddenly has a memory lapse. And what he once knew intimately, he suddenly becomes ignorant of. That's a wrong understanding of those passages of Scripture. The Bible is using this kind of language to say that God does not hold it against us anymore. To say that he doesn't hold it against us means it's been forgiven, the sin has been paid for, and there's no longer a debt that has to be paid, right? That's what the gospel is. The gospel says that you and I have a debt that we can't possibly pay on our own. No matter what good we do, we can't possibly pay that that debt on our own. And God's sending Jesus to die on the cross to shed his innocent blood provides provision for that debt, okay? It does, it, so what this means is that God does not hold it against us anymore. He does not deliver a punishment. The just punishment for any sin would be what? It would be eternal separation from God. Romans 3.23, for all of sin, they've come short of the glory of God. 6.23, the wages of sin is what? The penalty for the sin is death, which is not bang, bang, you're dead. It's eternal separation from God. But God takes the punishment away when we place our trust in his son's sacrificial death on the cross for our sins. Now, the New Testament tells us at least 25 times that the distributions of reward in heaven will be done according to our relative obedience or the works that we perform in this life that we're currently living on this planet. Let me give you a couple texts just real quickly. Uh, Romans chapter 14, verses 10 through 12. For we'll all stand before the judgment seat so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Matthew chapter 12, verse 36, but I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. That's a scary thought, isn't it? <laughs> you mean every careless thing that I say? 
Luke chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, but there's nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed upon the housetops. Now, in those contexts, it's very clear if you were to go to those passages of Scripture and you were to look in context, right, you were to look at what's before and what's after, you would recognize that those verses are referring to Christians and not unbelievers. And so the judgment seat of Christ, therefore, involves believers giving an account of their lives to Christ. It does not determine salvation. That's the, that's the great white throne uh, judgment. The judgment seat of Christ uh, does not determine salvation. That was determined by Christ's uh, death on the cross and our faith in him. And so we're going to stand before God for a full and complete evaluation of the life we lived as followers of Jesus uh, on this earth. R.C. Sproul, maybe some of you uh, read him uh, from time to time, he said it this way, whether or not at the time of evaluation he will mention the complete track record or just say, here's the bottom line, you'll get so many rewards, I don't know. I don't know how it's going to work, but I'm going to be brought into a final accounting and certainly in God's mind, every detail of my life will be there. Even though I'm forgiven and I'm not punished, any sin still means that I will receive less reward than if I had been obedient. I think this is the context, by the way, of Revelation chapter 21 and verse 4. I know there are some that disagree with me, but they don't have a good reason uh, for giving me what that verse means. I think in Revelation chapter 21, some of you are familiar with this text, where John is writing that Jesus will remove, uh, wipe all the tears uh, from our, our eyes and um, there'll be no more sin, no more sickness, no more sadness, no more sorrow. I really believe that it's quite possible that that's within the context of us having gone through this judgment seat of Christ, and we do have a period of regret, recognizing what we could have done with the life that he gave us, recognizing that we, we could have had a greater impact. I think that that's the context that's there. And I speculate that those tears are regret for a life that was not fully devoted to the cause of Jesus while we walked on this planet. And we had such a short time, and we had so many opportunities to bring him glory and point others to him. And for whatever reason, we chose to just simply stick our ticket in our pocket that's been punched, saying, well, he's coming back for me, and I'll just deal with that when I get there. And so we shouldn't look at the judgment seat of Christ as God judging our sins, but rather as God rewarding us for our lives. Yes, the Bible says that we're going to give an account of ourselves, and part of that is surely answering some of those questions. However, that's not going to be the primary focus of the judgment seat of Christ. In fact, we don't have time this morning, but there are at least five uh, heavenly crowns that are mentioned uh, in the New Testament. And we're going to be given crowns and we're going to be given rewards. And the context all the way through the New Testament is that we will take those crowns, we will take those rewards, and we will throw them at the feet of Jesus. That's going to be part of the sorrow, I believe, too, when we come face to face with the God of the universe, with our, our, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who suffered and bled and died for us. And we're going to have this opportunity to worship by throwing those at his feet. And for some of us, we're going to go, I have nothing. I've just simply got me because I had my... Ticket punched, I believed in him as my savior, but I did not live my life as a fully devoted follower of Jesus. I think also we're going to be reminded of how incredibly merciful God has been in this life. How patient he was uh, with us and how great his forgiveness was when we see him uh, who he really is. Question number four. And we got to really hurry. Who decided what letters slash books of the Bible would be included in the New Testament and how? 
Okay, that's like a three-minute question, right? I mean, we could answer that one very quickly. Um, The term canon, some of you are Bible students, and this will just be a refresher course for you, is used to describe the books that are divinely inspired and therefore belong in the Bible. Uh, The difficulty is uh, determining the biblical canon is that the Bible does not give us a specific list of the books that belong in the Bible. And so determining uh, the canon was a process conducted first by Jewish rabbis and scholars and later by early Christians. And ultimately, I believe it was God who decided what books belonged to the biblical canon. Now, a book of Scripture belonged in the canon from the moment that God inspired its writings. And the challenge was uh, for men, for human beings, to determine um, what books those actually were. Now, compared to the New Testament, there was really actually very little controversy over what included the canon of the Old Testament. Uh, Hebrew believers recognized God's messengers, and they accepted uh, their writings as inspired of God. Uh, While there were uh, undoubtedly some who debated uh, the uh, Old Testament, most people didn't, and by about AD 250, there was nearly universal agreement on the canon of the Hebrew uh, Scripture. Uh, for the New Testament, uh, the process of the recognition and collection began in the first centuries of the Christian church, and very early on, some of the New Testament books were being recognized. Uh, Paul considered Luke's books, uh, for example, to be authoritative as the Old Testament. Uh, we can see that in 1 Timothy 5. Uh, P- Peter recognized Paul's writings as Scripture in 2 Peter 3. Some of the books of the New Testament were being circulated amongst the churches. We know that by reading Colossians 4 and 1 Thessalonians 5. Um, let, me, let me summarize this because I've got a lot of information here. There were councils uh, that met. In fact, the first canon uh, was the Moratorian canon, which was compiled in A.D. 170. The Moratorian uh, canon included all the New Testament books except Hebrews and James and 3 John. In A.D. 363, the Council of Laodicea stated that only the, the uh, Old Testament... And the 27 books of the New Testament were to be read in the churches. The Council of Hippo, okay, that's not Hippopotamus for you kids down there, okay, this is not like a, I want to get you confused there. AD 393 and the Council of Carthage in AD 397 also affirmed those same 27 books as authoritative. Now, the council uh, uh, followed something similar to the following principles to determine whether a New Testament book was truly inspired by the Spirit. There are four things. Was the author an apostle or have a close connection with, the apostle, with an apostle? Number two, is the book being accepted by the body of Christ at large? Number three, did the book contain consistency of doctrine and orthodox teaching? And number four, did the book bear evidence of high moral and spiritual values that would reflect a work of the Holy Spirit? Um, again, I think it's really crucial for you to uh, remember that the church did not determine uh, the canon. No early church uh, council decided on the canon. It was God and God alone who determined which books belonged in the Bible. It was simply a a matter of God's imparting to his followers what he had already uh, decided. The human process of collecting the books of the Bible was flawed, but God in his sovereignty, I firmly believe, gave us the Bible as we have it here today. I can't answer every uh, single question, but despite our ignorance and our stubbornness, I believe that we have the completed canon of Scripture in our possession uh, today. And that's how we got it. 
Now, there's a lot of other things. Uh, again, I uh, recognize that for many of you, that brings up more hang-ups, okay? So write your question down there, and we'll, we'll get to those in the next uh, couple weeks. But it is important for you to wrestle through that. It really is. And um, there's some great resources out there uh, for those of you that just, that just struggle with that. I would say make sure, make sure, make sure uh, that you get straight on Scripture. I've said that on a regular basis, that if you leave Northwest and you move someplace else uh, and you try to find another church, that's the first thing you look for. Are they straight on God's word? If they're not straight on God's word, then they're going to err in other places, all right? Do they accept God's word as the authority? Is that their basis for doctrine and for practice? Okay, question number five, and we'll end with this. (laughs) I say we'll end with it. This is the most difficult question. Could it be possible that Christ's sacrifice and God's power are enough to destroy hell and rescue those who have fallen? Would this not bring him the most glory, that all of humanity is saved and worshiping him for eternity? If he's able to do it, why would he not do that? Great question, right? Uh, In his recent uh, book, uh, Francis Chan's book, Erasing uh, Hell, Uh, Francis Chan asked the question, does everyone go to heaven? Right at the beginning of the book, he he asked that question. Does everyone go to heaven? His answer is this. Based on what I hear at funerals, the answer is an overwhelming yes. (laughs) Isn't that true? I don't say that flippantly. I really don't. We get a chuckle, but I don't say that flippantly. I have yet to be at a funeral. I'm 46 years of age. I've conducted a number of funerals. I've yet to be to a funeral where... The pastor, the person that's speaking up front says, we grieve this morning because this person is going to spend eternity apart from Jesus. Nobody wants to go to a funeral and hear that, do you? How many funerals have you attended where there was even a question about where somebody would spend eternity? Throughout history, some Christians have not only wanted God to ultimately save everyone, some have gone so far as to say that the Bible argues that in the end, God will ultimately save everyone, that everyone will end up in heaven. We know that if you're a Bible student, if you're a theologian or a theologian wannabe, uh, we know that as universalism, right? That in the end, God just kind of goes, all right, I just, I love you so much that I'm just going to somehow make a way. I know I told you you needed to come through Jesus and you needed to wrestle, but I'm just going to somehow make a way. In fact, the most famous proponent of universalism was an early church leader by the name of Origen. Uh, Origen's beliefs were later determined to be heretical, uh, but this did not stop a small remnant of people, and it's been true since the beginning of time, from embracing his heresy. But for over 1,600 years, hardly any major theologian Uh, ever argued that everyone would be saved. But it all began to change in the 1800s when there were a group of people who studied what Origen had written, even though it had been determined by church councils as heresy. They resurrected that in the 1800s, and it's really been with us ever since. They resurrected those beliefs and they put them back on the table. And today there are a growing number of confessing Christians who seem to believe in one form or another that ultimately God will save everyone regardless of their acceptance of his son's sacrifice on the cross as payment for their sin debt. In fact, most recently, uh, there was another author by the name of uh, Rob Bell who wrote a book that immediately stirred up controversy in the evangelical uh, community. And by the way, 
Uh, I got this, I think, the day that it came out, and I read it uh, completely, and I've uh, also read Francis Chan's book, uh, Erasing Hell. This book stirred up a lot of controversy in the evangelical community. And in his best-selling book, Love Wins, Rob Bell uses his uh, creative writing style, and he is an incredible writer and an incredible communicator. He uses his writing style and his wit. He communicates what I believe, while he does not strictly say this, nor would he want to label himself this way, because it is not palatable in the evangelical world which he occupies, I really believe that he advocates a universalist uh, position. He suggests that every single person will ultimately embrace Jesus, if not in this life, then certainly in the next. In fact, he writes this. At the heart of this perspective, and I'm quoting him, is the belief that given enough time, everybody will turn to God and find themselves in the joy and peace of God's presence. The love of God will melt every hard heart, and even the most depraved sinners will eventually give up their resistance and turn to God. That's what he wrote in his book. Now, I want to believe, quite frankly, that ultimately that God will save everyone. I like that view. Don't you? That's a good view. In fact, I tell you, that's palatable to the culture that we live in right now. That's really what I'd prefer to preach if it were about what makes sense to me. That view sits really well with my finite human understanding and of my emotions. But since he is God and since he is sovereign and can do whatever he wants to do, Why doesn't he in the end just say, ultimately, love wins? I'm the boss, and here's what I said. I'm just going to make a decision that everybody is going to be with me for eternity. That's what I think I'd do if I were God, wouldn't you? But I'd do some other things that you better be glad that I'm not God, okay? In fact, Isaiah said it this way in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. That's a good reminder for me. Nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. The question then is, what does the Bible say, right? That's ultimately where we go back to for our sole source of doctrine and practice. Despite what we may want to believe, what becomes palatable to our culture, what does the Bible actually say? Do you know that there's nothing in the Bible that would lead us to understand that there's a second chance after death to accept Jesus as your Savior from sin. In fact, just the opposite. Now, if we had time this morning, I would take you to some of the texts that Rob Bell and other universalists, even though he doesn't want to be called one, uh, would uh, use. We don't have time this morning to do that. I would encourage you to read both books. I really would. Read this one, and then read uh, the biblical version of hell right here, Erasing Hell. But let me give you just a few passages of Scripture. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. We don't have time to read the whole passage, um, but this is talking about the great white throne uh, judgment and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. And he talks about, and I saw the dead, the great and small, standing before the throne. The books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. That's the book where our names are written if we've placed our trust in Christ alone as our Savior. And they were judged. And the sea gave up the dead, verse 13, and they were judged. Verse 14, then death and Hades were thrown in the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire, verse 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was given a second chance, right? I mean, your name's not there, but now you see it, don't you? I mean, now that you're here, don't you? It's not what the text says. It says if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. I'll say that flippantly, 
I certainly don't say that in a joyful way. Revelation chapter 22, verses 14 and 15. Blessed are those who wash their robes, wash their robes metaphorically in the blood of Jesus, so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. Outside, not inside, that ultimately love wins. Now, the purpose of taking the time to answer the question, by the way, is not to prove a doctrinal argument. That's not true. I love debate, and I love to go nose-to-nose with somebody who disagrees with me on any issue. In fact, if I can't find somebody who disagrees with me, I'll take the opposite approach just to have a good dialogue going back and forth. That is not the purpose of me answering this question this morning. I think uh, most, if not all of you, recognize that what we believe to be true about these issues ultimately does determine eternal destinies, does it not? What we're talking about is not simply doctrinal trivia. This is about the lives of people. Toward the end of his earthly life and ministry, Jesus actually told a parable. In fact, it was related to this issue of second chances. If you have your Bible, look quickly in Luke chapter 13, verses 22 to 30. The context is Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem and his disciples along the way, you know, they're always asking questions, right? They're always saying things that if I was Jesus, I'd turn to them and go, really? I mean, seriously? Where did that come from? Of all the things you could be talking to me about, I'm the Son of God. I'm Jesus. And you're asking me, can you sit here? Can you sit there at the table? I mean, really? Okay, so these guys are always asking Jesus questions, which are kind of crazy. This one's not so crazy, though. Because they ask him the question of um, how many people will actually in the end be saved? And Jesus answers that only a few will be saved. But the sad thing is that there will be many that think that they're going to heaven and they're going to end up outside looking in. While outside, they're going to, they're going to knock on the door to see if Jesus will let them in. But what happens when he comes to the door? Look at verse 25 there in Luke chapter 13. Verse 25 says that when he comes to the door, he will say, I don't know where you come from. Now, if you believe as a universalist that there are second chances, and in the end, love wins, right? If you believe that, then you've got to finish the parable this way. Jesus comes to the door and he says, what are you doing out there? Come on in. I'm sorry that we closed the door before you arrived. Here we have a place right here for you, and we've got a steak on the heavenly grill pit down here, and it's got your name on it. What are you doing outside? Come back inside. But that's not what he says. Look again at verse uh, 25. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer and say to you, I don't know where you are, where you're from. Then you'll begin to say, but we ate and drank in your presence. and You taught in our streets. And he'll say, I tell you, I don't know where you're from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. This passage gives us absolutely no hint that the door remains open indefinitely. I really believe that if Jesus believed in second chances, then uh, this particular passage of Scripture is terribly misleading. Wouldn't you agree? The reality is that there is a heaven, that there is a hell, and the reality is that we are eternal beings and we will spend eternity someplace. The good news is the gospel, and that's why we have 20 people in Kenya today. That's why we have an opportunity to go out of these doors as ambassadors 
uh, for the gospel, for the cause of Jesus Christ. Because the good news is that while we have a debt that we can't possibly pay on our own, by simply trusting in Christ alone as our personal Savior, we are assured of eternity in heaven. And second chances are irrelevant. They don't matter. Here's the thing. If I were to be wrong about my doctrinal understanding of hell, and if Rob Bell's uh, book is correct, Love Wins, if I'm wrong, uh, there are no eternal consequences uh, for uh, human beings if I'm wrong. If I'm, if, I'm, if I'm wrong, then everybody ultimately gets in, right? However, that's why I say this is not just simply doctrinal trivia. It's not just something that we write with wit and humor to sell books. This is something that determines our eternal destiny. And I would submit to you that if the universalist position is wrong, then we have a terrible, terrible tragedy on our hands. Because we recognize that every second, dozens and dozens and hundreds of people, even since I've been speaking over the last 40 minutes, have slipped out into eternity. It has tremendous consequence. And that's why I challenge you to wrestle through that even more.